it started with one, one, and continued with many, with many. Lives reborn, reborn. The fearful made courageous to march against the gates of hell, hell, to trample them, trample them. We are heroes who have been sent. Well, good morning. It's nice to see you today. Welcome those of you who are joining us from an off-site campus or on the internet or uh, maybe in one of the venues uh, here. We're glad that you're along also. It's good to be together, isn't it? I mean, how many of you would have thought maybe five years ago that you would actually look forward to coming to church, you know, and that you would come regularly? And uh, I I love it. I love uh, getting together and just kind of hanging out with, uh, with people who share a common love for the Lord. Really do. It's great. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever gotten really excited about something and it didn't turn out like you thought it would? Okay? All right. Just about everybody in here. All right, I'm going to tell you a story. I'll tell you two stories. How's that? Um, This week, this past week, as a matter of fact, someone in our church offered to let us use a beach house on Isle of Palms. We've never done, we've never been able to have an extended stay like that. And, uh, and so they, you know, they have this rental deal and they said it was available this week and we'll just let you stay. And so we were so excited. Let me tell you up front, it was a good experience in spite of what I'm going to tell you here in just a second. It was a good experience. But, you know, really built it up in our minds. I was excited about it. Debbie's excited about it. We're looking forward to it. We're thinking about, you know, relaxing. I've been a little bit sick and it'd be a time and I'm feeling good. Thanks for your prayers, but a good time to kind of recover and getting ready for a big ministry season. And uh, this is going to be great. We'll just kind of read books and hang out and watch the ocean and we'll take some nice walks, you know, on the ocean and all that. And what we did is we invited our whole family to come with us. And for those of you who are tracking with us, we have six grandchildren. We invite all of them to come to be a part of the experience. The oldest one's two and a half. There's two toddlers and four babies. Let me tell you what I learned about babies. Here's what I know about babies. Okay, the babies are all three months old is the oldest one, and there are four of them, and they they range down to, I don't know, a few weeks, whatever. But anyway, here's what babies do. Babies basically do four things, and they repeat it every three hours. Babies eat. Babies occasionally sleep. Babies cry. And babies poop. Okay? And I'm going to use the word. We're all adults. I was going to use another word, you know, but let's just, that, that's what they do. That's, that's what they do. Here's the deal. They don't do it like, okay, let's go one, two, three, four. Oftentimes they'll crowd two of those events or, or one event three times within the three, three hour period. And here's the problem. With one baby, it's fairly, I mean, it's not easy, but it, it's, it's manageable. You can do it. You put four babies together, and they're not all on the same schedule. So you, at any moment, several of those four things can be happening all at the same time. About our second uh, day there, somehow in the afternoon for just about an hour's stretch, there ended up being three of us monitoring all six kids. And all three of us were male, okay? <laughs> and when the mamas and grandmamas and all of that left just for an hour to go do various things, they were all asleep and they assured us everything will be fine. 
Well, it wasn't. As soon as moms went out the door, crying started and yada, yada, yada. And so all three of us had grabbed a, uh, a baby and we were uh, feeding them a bottle. And a fourth one is now starting to cry. And at about that time, true story, Jason, my oldest son, who was feeding his youngest daughter, yelled as if he'd been shot. Oh, my. And, he, and we said, what, what's wrong? And he stood up and he kind of had her by the back and he turned her around. And she had experienced what's called a blowout. Okay? Now, as I understand after this week, there are various scales of blowouts. This one went from about right here all the way up to the hairline. Okay? Clear up to... That's right. Clear up to the hairline. And so evidently she'd been storing up for this, this one moment. And so, and so Jason grabs her. He says, I need some help. And we're going, bro, our hands are full, man. There's one crying over here. You're kind of on your own, okay? So we're in this big great room kind of a deal, and there's a kitchen over here. The kitchen has a big sink. So he takes her over the sink, delicately pulls things, grabs her by the neck and gets the spray deal. And he's just, you know... Doing this deal, this deal right there, right, right there. Okay, that wasn't very relaxing. True story. It wasn't two hours later. Joshua, my second son, decides that he is going to bathe both of his. He has a toddler and a baby. He's going to bathe them both in um, uh, the, the bathtub in the bedroom where Debbie and I are staying because it's big and it's kind of this. Kind of, you know, it, you know what I mean. It's a bigger bathtub, so run in water and put them in there. All of a sudden, I hear Joshua yelling, just like Jason. And what had happened was his three-month-old had produced what's called a floaty. Okay. <laughs> How many of you are glad you came today? I just wanted to share. I just wanted to share my week with you. Well, here's what I learned. At three months old, it's not so much a floaty as it is an oil slick, okay? <laughs> and uh, once again, we were occupied. He had to deal with it. Everybody lived. But that night, we had, Debbie and I had planned on these nice walks on the beach and stuff. Nine o'clock, we're in bed. It's like totally exhausted. Everybody's sleeping. We thought, let's sleep now while we've kind of got a few hours of this. She looks over at me and she says, you know, if this is a war, the kids are winning. <laughs> they owned us. We, had a, we ended up having, a, having a, a great week, but it wasn't quite what we, exactly how we had planned. You know, usually when you raise your hand about getting excited about something and then it didn't turn out like you thought it would be and, and it can be... It, it can be it can be tragic. It can, it can be anything from some of you right now are experiencing a marriage relationship that is not turning out like you thought it would, or it might be something at work, or it could be uh, something as serious and severe as losing a loved one before you ever dreamed it would happen. We, we, we all know that, you know, we're mortal and, and we all die sometime, but we don't think about that when you have to bury one of your kids or, or when you, your spouse, your loved one, or whatever, and you're just not prepared for it. And, and you're in the midst of tragic, tragic circumstances. 
How do you handle all of that? You know, if you believe there is no God, and if you also believe there is not like a plan where that a God can take whatever circumstances and weave them into his plan and bring about good, if you believe that all of the rewards and that all of life is about right now, I don't know how you handle that. I really don't. I really don't. But if you believe that there is a God, and if you believe that God has a plan and He can work His plan in spite of the stuff that sometimes happens that we go, where did this come from? And if you believe that this is just a slice of life, that life is eternal, and that many things and many of the important things are kind of squared up in eternal life beyond just our time here, then you can handle more than you thought that you could handle. What I want to talk about today is uh, we're in a series and uh, we're kind of in the second part of a mini-series called Sent, where, and, and the concept behind it is that there's this, this brand new church uh, that has been established that has been through kind of some ups and downs, but mostly ups. Uh, just a few people are following Jesus, and Jesus is crucified. They didn't plan on that. And so there was a downtime until Jesus resurrected from the dead. And then he told them he was going away, but he was going to leave them another part of him, another part of God, the Holy Spirit. And that they would be filled and empowered at some point in the future by the Holy Spirit. And that they would share a relationship with God. And it would enhance the relationship with one another. And they really probably didn't understand it until it happened to them. In Acts chapter 2, there was a group of people of about 500 who were filled with the Holy Spirit. 120 in one place and then others around. And in that experience with God, this filling with the Holy Spirit, this connecting with God, they experienced something that they they couldn't even have dreamed of. And kind of the outgrowth of that were the relationships that happened among them. Jerusalem must have been an incredible, incredible place during that time. Thousands of people are having these encounters with God that's changing them. And, and, and in the midst of it, there are gatherings like this that are, that are happening not just once a week, but it's happening even more regular than that where people are experiencing relationship with one another that they never dreamed possible. There's a koinonia, a fellowship. They're, they're sharing their lives and they're sharing their stuff and that was to be the pattern for the church to come. And then something happened. And it, it seemed to be a tragedy. And, it, and what happened, one of them who many, many people knew, some knew him as perhaps a son, a cousin, an uncle, a friend, a man named Stephen, just a normal guy who went all in for, for God, full of the Holy Spirit, good reputation, Wisdom. He'd been chosen to be one of the leaders in Acts chapter 6. And actually what he was doing was serving. He was waiting tables and he began to share the good news and, and he's martyred for it. He's murdered right in their midst. You know, we read these stories and, you know, you got two lines of, 
you know, and so-and-so died or they were, they were stoned or whatever. And behind, you, you just don't get the emotions. You can't capture the emotions. These are real people. And, and how did others feel? And what was the grieving process and, and all of that? And so in, in this new church, there's the first person is murdered right in front of them. And everything changed. In fact, in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, it says a great wave of persecution began that day, the day that Stephen was murdered. And it was sweeping over the church in Jerusalem and all the believers except the apostles fled into Judea and into Samaria. Some godly men came and they buried Stephen with loud weeping. Can you get the moment? This, it was a wonderful time in Jerusalem and, and now people are running everywhere and, and they're weeping over this friend that was murdered and there's whispers that others are being murdered and people are being rounded up and quick, we've got to get our stuff. We've got to go. We've got to leave. Where is God in all of this? God was in the middle of it. In fact, to see it as strictly a tragic situation is not to really understand how the Holy Spirit works because God was behind it. God was weaving the story. The Holy Spirit is in the business of turning negatives into positives, and He still does, of turning disasters into miracles. In fact, the biggest one was when He turned a crucifixion into a resurrection. And we all have stuff that happens in our lives. How do we handle it from a spirit-filled perspective? The key is to interpret current events from one who is filled through the eyes of one who is filled with the Holy Spirit. And here's what I want to do today. I want to just give you two or three insights that I saw as I was studying this. And, And then I want to do the most important thing, and that's this. I want to ask you a question, and the question is this. How do you know that you're spirit-filled? And then a deeper question is, am I filled with the Holy Spirit? And it's an important question because I don't believe everybody in this place is. Okay? And you're not experiencing all that God has for you. And and there are events that happen and I don't know how you handle them outside of being full of God's Holy Spirit. And so... Uh, don't feel threatened. I, I don't want anyone to, uh, you know, kind of feel like um, you've got to be defensive. I just want you to honestly come before the Lord today and ask Him, am I experiencing all that you would have for me? And uh, I believe that by the end of our time together that we will experience even more and more of what God has for us. So let, let me give a, a couple of observations. Number one, for a Spirit-filled believer, persecution is not always a bad thing. Persecution is not always a bad thing. In fact, what we read in verses 1 and 2 was actually the fulfillment of a prophecy that Jesus gave in Acts 1.8. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, But when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will receive power. That happened in Acts 2 for one group and in Acts 4 for some of the same group and and a few people more. And he says, here's what's going to happen. And you will tell people about me. And they're doing that. The the word of Jesus is all around Jerusalem. But then the next verse he says, you're going to tell tell people about me everywhere. That's not happening. 
It's happening in Jerusalem, but it's not happening throughout Judea or Samaria or to the ends of the earth. And so God's got this big plan that it doesn't stay right there. That it's not just captured, it's not just to be enjoyed by that group of people, but He wants the Word to spread everywhere. And it's not happening. Why not? Because things are good in Jerusalem. Things are good there. I don't ever want to move. I love what I'm feeling. Things are good here. They didn't realize that the scattering would happen through persecution. But God kind of gave them a a nudge with that. And you know, sometimes it takes a little persecution to get Christians these days out of their comfort zone and into the next season, the sent season, the next season of God's work in their life. I don't know if you're like me, but I can talk about how I like change, and I really don't, especially when things are good. For uh, more than half of you watching through that camera, we'll have five services right here in this room today, and I um, add all those services together, and, and there's a lot more people who will be watching from an auditorium somewhere that are in this auditorium uh, live today. And, and that would never have happened if it were not some, for some persecution by some people in our city eight years ago. I won't go through the whole story. I've talked about it quite a bit, but we were going to build a bigger building. We were, you know, five services. And, and, um, and we went through a whole process and it all looked good. And at the last minute, there were just a small group of people that seemed to sabotage the process. And it seemed personal. I didn't understand it. My word got back to me that one of the guys that was involved said, you know what, I'm going to do everything I can to make his life miserable. And I went, why? I don't, under- I don't know what, I-, I mean, I'm not perfect, but I don't know what I've done or what we've done. We just want to do good in the community. And for whatever reason, we were barred from building bigger and doing what our plans were. And I wish I could have told, I wish I could tell you today that when that kind of verdict came down, that I I went out to the car and I told Debbie, let's count it all joy. This is awesome. I'm so glad God has blocked the process through this wonderful group of people who are opposing us. I've got to be honest with you, I've grown a lot. I really have. I hope I would respond even better than I did then, but that was not my response. It's interesting that a couple of years later, after we'd kind of started this multi-site process, had a couple of sites going, two or three sites going, and, and I happened to run into the leading proponent, the, the guy that just seemed to really put it personal to me, um, and uh, of his own accord, he didn't believe in God, and uh, I, I happened to run into him at a store. Actually, he ran into me. I was trying to hide from him when I saw who he, who he was. <laughs> And he sought me out and he said, Pastor, he said, he said, I am so proud of you and your congregation with all of these sites around. I wanted to throw up. I really did. I was like, proud. Come on. You know, you're yanking my chain. And he said this. He said this. He said, I'll never forget. He said, don't you think that we, speaking of him and his group, don't you think we just had something to do with the success of what is going on there. And I thought, yeah, 
like the guys who were throwing rocks at Stephen. Uh, you know, it, it, uh, all kinds of scenarios went through my mind, which f- fortunately were filtered and didn't come out. And the only thing I could say was, you know, you might be right. And I went home, and for several weeks I thought about it. And he was right. This would never have happened were it not for persecution because we were Mount Pleasant and we were here and it was going to get bigger and just just because we wanted to help more people. And God said, no, I want you to go out. I want you to go out. It happened in our church. We sometimes think that any form of resistance in our lives mean that we're somehow outside of God's will. This is so hard. Why is it so hard at work? Why is it so hard in my family? Why is it so hard, so hard, so hard? must be outside of God's will. Any of you who work out? Do any of you work out, do you? I mean, I've worked out, you know, uh, this morning. Uh, (laughs) Ate a Pop-Tart and... (laughs) You know? Well, if you work out, you know that resistance is your friend, right? Resistance is your friend. Resistance first breaks down some of the muscle parts and then builds them up, and you can never build them up unless you have resistance. And if you're experiencing resistance in your life and it may feel like persecution, it may be God stretching you, drawing you, and sometimes you're clawing and you're scratching and God's got to pull hard in order to draw you into the next season of what He has for you. So for a Spirit-filled believer, persecution is not always a bad thing. second thing I observed is that for a spirit-filled believer, God is able to make friends out of your worst enemies. God is able to make friends out of your worst enemies. I don't want to spend a lot of time with this. We're going to talk about some next week with Acts chapter 9 with the conversion of, of Saul who became Paul. But verse 3 says this, Saul was going everywhere to devastate the church. It was his mission. He's going to devastate the church. He went house to house dragging out both men and women to throw them into jail, the biggest enemy of the church. In chapter 9, we find that there's a conversion experience and God turned their biggest enemy into a friend. Not just a friend, but the man who became the biggest evangelist for Christ, the man who was the original missionary, the man who wrote most of the New Testament. Can I pose a question to you? What would have happened if they would have exacted revenge on Paul, gotten a vigilante group together, and taken him out because of what he had done? See, that wasn't God's plan. In fact, the distinguishing characteristic, one of the biggest distinguishing characteristics in Christianity is how you treat your enemies. How you treat your enemies. I'll be honest with you, we don't get it. There's a handful of people in this church, any church, that get this. The rest of us, we we don't get it. We don't act as spirit-filled believers. We don't lean into the Holy Spirit on this thing. See, how you treat your enemies, Jesus showed us. He said they were 
crucifying him. See, vengeance is vengeance is this thing that is so hard. That is that is the thing I think that distinguishes Christianity from a lot of other things. We see vengeance begin with little kids, those toddlers, when one of them would take the other's toy, immediately there was I will get that back and I will hurt you if I have to. And you can be a Christian and you can have somebody Your husband, your ex-husband. Uh, it can be somebody at work. It, it can be somebody in your home. Whatever, who hurts you. And what do you do? You protect yourself, and then you try to get back what was taken away. And in Christianity, Jesus said this. As they were crucifying him, he said, I forgive them. Father, forgive them. Stephen, they were throwing stones. What did he say? Forgive them. Peter, the most amazing thing he could remember about Jesus was, was on the cross. Jesus said, I don't judge him. Father, you judge him. This is, this is the epitome of a spirit-filled life. And then Jesus says, how do you treat your enemies? You love them. You bless them. If you were to examine your life right now and the enemies in your life, how do you see them? Do you see them through the lens that God is able to take your biggest enemy and turn them into a friend? It might be somebody that politically opposes you. It might be somebody that they're like a frenemy. You know what a frenemy is? They act like a friend and they're an enemy. You're always wondering, where am I in this? Do you see them through the lens of a spirit-filled believer? It says they're valuable to God and God is able to... What would happen in your life? It's the only thing I want to ask about this. What if your biggest enemy tomorrow was turned into a friend supernaturally by the power of the Holy Spirit? How would that make your life different? Well, see, God's able to do that. Third observation that I make about this whole thing is this, is that your city, your neighborhood, the school that you're a part of, whatever it is, should be really glad you're there if you're a Spirit-filled believer. Look at Acts 4. It says, but the believers who had fled Jerusalem went everywhere preaching the good news about Jesus. Philip, for example. Now, who's Philip? Philip was one of the guys, seven guys, that was chosen with Stephen to wait tables because of good reputation. He was full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. And so Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria. Samaria is very cross-cultural. It's not very far away, but it's a totally different kind of people that live there. They, they see life differently. They act differently. They worship differently. And he told the people there about the Messiah. And crowds listened intently to what he had to say because of the miracles that he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims. And many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy. Circle great joy. There was great joy joy in their city. Your city should be really glad. Your neighborhood should be really glad that you're there if you're a spirit-filled believer. Why was there great joy? Two things. There was a great message. There was great joy because of the message. What was the message? It was the gospel. It was the good news. He preached the gospel. Did you know that the gospel simply means good news? And did you know that the gospel was not strictly a religious term during those days? They're in a Roman Greek culture and the Greek culture, uh, the Gospels meant good news. And what it was is uh, anytime Greece would win a battle, 
in a war, a skirmish or whatever, then they would take the gospel back to the homeland to tell people what had happened. It's good news. And what they would do is they would, they would elect or they would find an officer who would become the bearer of the good news. Guess what he was called? An evangelist. An evangelist. The evangelist would go back to wherever they were and the evangelist would say, General so-and-so has won the battle. You no longer need to live in fear because you are free. That was the good news. That's what Philip was saying. That's what the gospel is. Did you know the gospel is not a lifestyle? The gospel is not a list of things that you need to do in order to be better or to be your best you or whatever it happens to be. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is an announcement. It's good news. Jesus won the battle. You no longer have to fear. You can be free. And that's what he said. And that's one of the reasons there was great joy in the city. And the second one had to do with the ministry, with the ministry. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 16 about his believers, his followers, he said, you know, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly father. He says that what you do and what Philip did is he healed sick people. He helped captives to be set free. He did good among the people. So we study the New Testament church. They let their deeds shine in at least three ways. First, they didn't flee sickness, but they sought to bring healing. That's part of what they did. In the city centers, they were growing so big during that those times, there was a whole sociological change that was going. People come from rural areas into the city because of the Greek culture and the Roman and all of this kind of stuff. And as the cities grew bigger, epidemics grew stronger, like the flu epidemic that we have uh, in the world right now, only multiple times stronger. People died all of the time. And so what would happen is... Uh, 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 people who were able to treat other people and, and uh, uh, lots of folks would flee from the city centers when epidemics would come naturally to try to get away from other people to kind of quarantine themselves. Everybody but Christians. Christians didn't do that. In fact, Christians created the first hospitals. They were the first no- nursing associations, all of that kind of thing because they cared and because they knew that Christ was the healer and because they were not afraid to die. They understood that this little slice that we call life is only a piece of eternal life and it's a small slice and I'm going to serve God as best I can during this time. And if I die, so be it. If I live, praise be to Jesus. The people saw that. Christians were also forgiving under persecution. As I just said, they were not the only minority who were persecuted, but what made them different is that they didn't exact revenge. They didn't organize posses and, uh, you know, um, uh, vigilante groups to fight back or to seek justice. Instead, they forgave. And over time, that elevated the good news of the gospel. And then Christian churches were the only places where you could find peace among multi-ethnic groups. Because of all the ethnicity that was coming together, there was ethnic tension. But in the church, there was acceptance. And if you read through... Paul's writings and he talks about there is no Greek or Hebrew. There's no slave. There's no free man. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Let's treat each other like that. And so when they gathered, it might have been the only time during the week when there, there, there wasn't tension and there was acceptance. There was great joy in that city. So the question is, is there great joy in your city? Because you're there. 
Is there great joy where the campuses are? If, if, if Seacoast was to go away, would the city miss us? Would they miss our church? Would your neighborhood miss you? I know one place there's great joy, and that's in North Charleston. I, I remember, and it can't be the same everywhere, but I just wanted to show you a slice of what's going on. A couple, three years ago, read the newspaper, USA Today, North Charleston, seventh most dangerous city in America, and I, I felt God prompting me, well, what are you going to do about that? What, what's Seacoast going to do about that? So we talked to uh, po- politicians and mayors and what have you, and we said, what can we do and where can we go? And, what's, and, and so we chose a neighborhood that has wonderful people who are underserved and it's a violent area. And we said, what can we do? What can we do? First thing we did is we went and preached the gospel. And we rented a little church building and now we have a little bit bigger church building and every weekend there's six or 700 people that are worshiping there in that place. And then we said, what can we do practically to meet the needs? How can the gospel become practical? And so we began to tutor uh, students and many of you have volunteered more of you i 'd love to see you do that and every week we tutor sixty kids and, and we mentor one on one mentoring forty more kids and we need to mentor hundreds if we 're going to change bring about change in the community uh, we, we We begin to adopt blocks, and hundreds of you do that every once a month on a Saturday and you, and you go and just love the neighborhood and and, and adopt a block and see if you can let the love of Jesus come through. And then we decided, let's do a medical clinic. And so many of you volunteered in the, in the professional uh, fields of medicine and some who, you know, you, you just come and, and, you know, you're not a professional in, in that area, but you come and, and you serve. And, and the city's being changed. We give away food. Um, 50,000 meals per year. One ton of food every week goes out of this little 200-square-foot little place. There's good, there's joy in the city. Medically, uh, we serve uh, people who can't afford insurance <laughs> or medicine or anything else. And, and we only do it for 42 hours a week because that's how, how much time volunteers can serve. I'd love to see the day, the time when it's, when it's every day, five days, six days a week. But you know what we do in, in those 42 hours is we serve 500 patients per month. Here's the dollars that that does. They tell us that if the patients who came went to the emergency room, which is where many would go and they can't pay, the emergency room it would cost about, the emergency room itself would cost, would put $2,000 of care uh, into these folks, which would come out of tax dollars. And (laughs) somebody told me the other day, we're saving taxpayers $10 million a year right now. And that's not our motivation. The motivation is to, serve the community. Is there joy in the community? Take a look at this. You can see it each and every day. It has been a change. A lot of people come here because they have no place else to go. They just hold their hands out to help you. Not only their hands, they hug you, they just, they make you feel so like you're a family member. They really care, they really help. My son, a couple of weeks ago, he didn't have a birthday cake. So, and they blessed him again. The people, wonderful. 
one big happy family. I just don't know what I would have done without them being here. Mm. There is joy in the city. Just a, a commercial announcement. Uh, on November the 12th at 6.30, we're going to have a banquet and we're calling it the Dream Center Clinic Banquet. I'd love to invite everybody to come be a, a, a part of that. Just that one night where you can go, man, the, here, here I am. I don't know what I can do. I don't know that I can go. Maybe I can give. Maybe I can pray. Maybe I can mentor. Whatever. That you would come. And, and uh, Tim Scott, who is a, uh, uh, a House of Representatives here in the state of South Carolina, who's a part of our church, is going to uh, give a talk on how big is your dream. He covers much of North Charleston and his area. It's going to be a great night. So we'd love to invite all of you to come. So for a spirit-filled believer, here, here's what they know. They know that all persecution is not bad. They know that God can make a friend out of your worst enemy. And they also know that the city really ought to be glad because there's stuff going on when spirit-filled believers gather. Here's the final question, and here's what I want you to ponder and meditate on. How do you know someone's spirit-filled? And more importantly, am I spirit-filled? You know, let's read the rest... I don't have time to read it. I'll tell it to you, all right? The next, the next passage of Scripture, you read it to see if what I said was true. Philip, Philip does this. Philip goes to the city. He preaches there's good news in the city, and people come to know Jesus, including a guy named Simon, who's a sorcerer. He's a magic guy. He makes a lot of money doing magic. You know, it's just sleight of hand stuff. Well, he becomes a believer, and he gets baptized. Now, the word goes back to headquarters that something's happening in Samaria. Samaria is a place nobody dreamed anything would happen. And so headquarters sends Peter and John, two big dudes in the church, to go figure out what's going on. They get there and they find out there are a lot of Christians who have not been spirit-filled. Now here's, I don't want to go into a whole lot of theology on this, but it would seem that sometimes when someone believes in the Lord, immediately God fills them with the Holy Spirit. Other times, not so much. There's an experience with the Holy Spirit, but there is, there's a lag, there's a delay, there's maybe a blockage. And, and in this case, they came and they found that there were people who were Christians who were not filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and, and so they came and they prayed over them and they became filled with the Holy Spirit. Simon the sorcerer watched that and he went up to one of them and he said, could I buy that? What you just did, could I buy that? I think it'd be good. Maybe I could then do that. And they said to him, you have no part in this. In fact, we can tell you're not filled with the Holy Spirit because you're filled with bitterness and sin. It cannot be bought. Here's the question. What did he see that he wanted to buy? It wasn't just an intellectual assent. In fact, I don't believe being filled with the Holy Spirit is just an intellectual, well, I'm saved, so I must be filled with the Holy Spirit. Something happens. In fact, in the book of Acts, Luke writes, every time someone's filled with the Holy Spirit, there is a physical experience. In Acts chapter 2, the original group, they spoke in tongues. They, prophes- or they, uh, they praised God and they preached the word with power. In Samaria that we just saw, it doesn't say what happened, but something happened because he wanted to buy it. He saw it. In Cornelius, uh, in uh, Acts chapter 10 and 11, in his house, they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. Uh, when Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit, we don't know what happens, but something did. He, there's a boldness to speak. 
every time, in Ephesus, in Ephesus in Acts 19, there were supernatural things that happened. So here's what I want to say. Here's the evidence, I think, of being filled with the Holy Spirit. There's three things. Number one, you experience more power. You have an experience with God and there, there, there is literally more power. It might be that you begin immediately to share the good news when you wouldn't talk to anybody about religion, Jesus, anything, and, and suddenly you're compelled to more power. It might be there was an area of your life where sin had a grip on you, and all of a sudden, you know, sometimes we, 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 we go through just, you know, uh, recovery over a long period of time, but sometimes there is a, an immediate break of that. There's power. There's power. Second thing you experience is you experience... Um, more fruit, more fruit. Uh, you may go from being an angry person to a loving person. You may go from being an impatient person to a patient person. And you know what? All of these things improve over time, but there is an immediate, something happens and there is an immediate, wow, something's different inside of me. The third thing is the presence of the supernatural. Something supernatural that cannot be explained happens. Sometimes it's speaking in tongues. Sometimes it's prophecy. Sometimes it's just like you, you know things that you, uh, about a situation that there's no way you could have known and you go, what was up with that? I remember the first time I realized that I had a gift to teach that was beyond. This is a kid that failed every speech class. Every one of them I ever went to. That stomach is in knots every time, including just before I walked onto this platform. And when I walk onto this platform, there is something that happens that is a supernatural gift that God has given. I don't understand it. It's not the same for everybody, but some of that should be going on. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Are you? Have you, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed. Some of you can say, I can relate to some of what you said. Others of you, you say, honestly, I don't relate to any of that. And there, there could be a couple of reasons. Number one, it might be because you have not really believed yet. You've not really believed yet. You've not gone from this side of the line and said, I'm all in. I believe. You may not understand it all. I don't understand everything there is to know about following Jesus. Here's what I do know, that Jesus was born of a virgin, that He came, He lived a sinless life, that He died for my sin, and that He rose again and a whole bunch of people witnessed it. And based on that, I'm all in. I'm a follower of Jesus. And you know, when I made that decision, some incredible things happened. Some incredible things happened. And it continued to. For others of you, there just may be a blockage of really experiencing all that God has for you. Maybe you believe but maybe there's a blockage of sin or, or, or maybe there's a blockage of unbelief. And what I want to challenge you with today is I want you to say, I want everything you have for me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today for your word. I thank you for the examples of people who are just like us, who go went through disappointment, who went through things that they didn't understand but they were sustained by this dynamic relationship with you. And God, it's my prayer as pastor of this church that we would all experience ongoing dynamic relationship 
with you. Would you draw us to you today? Would you fill us with your Holy Spirit? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.